0: hello it's michael again i am intensely sorry for the massive break between uh, recording these episodes i have lots of excuses as i probably said before actually but those aren't really relevant or probably even very interesting for you what i'll try and do is get all of the remaining episodes recorded and posted as soon as possible in the meantime sorry again Enjoy, if you can, this episode about people dying and the way that the media reports football supporters. Ciao, ciao! Chapter 19. The Truth. How supporters are portrayed by the media. If you believe what the TV says, then you're just as implicated, even if you're innocent. That taken from the song Canzone del Maggio by Fabrizio de André. Any British listeners will be aware of the Hillsborough disaster in 1989. Four days after 96 Liverpool supporters had died, The Sun carried the headline, The Truth, detailing how some fans picked the pockets of the victims, others urinated on police, and one officer who was tending to an injured fan was beaten up. We now know that these were defamatory lies. Drunken fans were said to have been the cause, and their supposed actions in the immediate aftermath hindered the police and ambulance crews trying to save lives. Again, lies spread by the media on behalf of the police and the government. This did, however, play to the media's vision of football fans in stadia. Scandalous tales of drunken brawls and out-of-control aggression led the Thatcher government to refer to football as being a law and order issue. Just as hysteria had been whipped up over various subcultures or ethnicities since time immemorial, the football fan, or hooligan if you prefer, became the new bogeyman. Like the teddy boys of the 50s, or Muslims in the last 15 years, the football fan, or hooligan, ultra as you prefer, was a threat to society and your children. Towards the end of the 70s in Italy, the media first started to pay attention to fan-on-fan violence. They were dangerous, and above all, selling this new fear to the people proved to be profitable. The question, why do they do it, was normally asked by journalists who weren't part of the ultras world, and rarely addressed any underlying social questions. Instead, they relied on police reports, stereotypes, and hyperbolic writing, rather than doing research. This Daily Mail, Freddy Star ate my hamster style, and I know that wasn't a headline from the Daily Mail, but go with me meant that the articles in question rarely arrived at pertinent or accurate conclusions, adding only to the demonisation and criminalisation of the subculture as a whole, similar to how Stuart Hall, no, not that one, described the British press's view of their homegrown hooligans. In the last 30 years, no other social folk devil has excited the volume of British media comment as the modern football hooligan. Front page headlines, exclusive inside stories and indignant editorials range in tone from a curt dismissal of hooligans, as not true supporters, to surreal invectives about animals and barbarians. In Houlifan 30 Years of Hurt, Martin King says, The hypocrisy of the condemnation of violence gets on my tits. Violence is rammed down our throats from the day we can first comprehend it. There is hardly a television programme broadcast after 6 o'clock that does not contain violence of some kind. The only TV drama we seem to be able to make in this country revolves around police and crime, normally encompassing violence. The news, too. Violence is a staple part of our lives. Yet, as a society, we affect abhorrence, horror and despair at it. We, on the other hand, don't. We acknowledge that violence is a turn-on, and we go out and indulge in it with like-minded souls. That is what I mean about it being the honesty of what we do that frightens people. In Italy, the press has followed two main lines of thought regarding ultras. The first talks about the benefit that supporters with passion bring to the game through their banners, flags and songs. The second view of fans is one of demonization the corve being inhabited by low lowlifes and criminals who must be kept under tight control. As Christian Coloura summarises in Ultras Iribelli del Calcio, the ultras are good as long as they add to the footballing spectacle, bad when they do so in a confrontational way. The spectacle acts as a mirror on society, where the spectator is constantly losing their humanity, becoming ever more a commodity with a value and a place. You could be forgiven for thinking that I believe that apart from the media's line on fans, football is a noble sport. I would of course be mistaken. Doping and match fixing are subjects that have unfortunately cropped up more than once in Italian football. But the real problem for many is, apparently, the fans. As an example of supporters being demonised, here's a case of Napoli fans going to watch their team play Roma in 2008. A few months previous, they had fought with Roma fans, and so it was expected that they'd be banned from the away trip, and rightly so too, to avoid any trouble. The interior ministry gave them the thumbs up though, so in the days before the match, the Napolitani, not wanting to fall foul of any further restrictions, spread the word that there would be no small groups going to the capital. They were all to travel together to avoid any possibility of loose cannons giving them a bad name. Anyone thinking of going either without a ticket or with the idea of bother or vandalism was instructed to stay at home. On the day of the match, the supporters were held up at the train station before leaving. Then, after a few hours of delay on a sold-out train that Trenitalia had continued selling tickets for, even though there was no more space, the train then stopped several times in the middle of the countryside, and all of this under a beating August sun. Some incidences of vandalism on the train were found when it eventually rolled into Rome. Damages which were immediately said to amount to around 500,000 euros. After getting checked, this was downgraded to some damaged curtains, a broken toilet and two smashed windows. But the word had already spread. Chaos on the train as a pack of savage football fans caused mayhem and terror. This came as a surprise to two Austrian football journalists who were on the same train for the match and later on in the evening answered panicked calls from colleagues and loved ones who thought they'd been kidnapped by the Ultras. In reality, everyone had been on pretty good behaviour, and the only thing that the Austrians were worried about was whether or not they'd get to the stadium on time. Nonetheless, the Napolitani were banned from away matches for the rest of the season. This narrative of fans as bogeymen has existed for decades. The increase in open journalism and social networking in recent years has lessened the traditional media's hold on information. However, just as it offers more people the opportunity to contribute to the news, so it offers people the chance to erroneously contribute to the news. Twitter, Facebook blogs and online newspapers can essentially become echo chambers for rumours, thus spreading false information like a cold on a long-haul flight. Take for example the events of the Italia final in 2014. At first, the rumour was that there had been fights between rival Napoli and Fiorentina fans. Then, there were multiple deaths. Then, that these were at the hands of the police. None of these things were true, but in the scramble for something to say, they were picked up by the traditional media, thus becoming credible in the eyes of much of the population. In reality, clashes had broken out between Napoli fans and Romanisti, Tragically, one Roma Ultra shot and killed one of the visitors. I don't want to sound like an apologist for Ultras. Some members of groups do things that I find abhorrent. Some groups follow ideologies that I think are terrible. Having said that, tarring everyone with the same brush is counterproductive. I have a tattoo of a football team and a season ticket in a corva. I also like to have a few beers before the match. I am not, however, an Ultra. Nor do I fight people or even like violence. I look away when someone dies a bloody death in a film or TV programme and would have enjoyed Reservoir Dogs much more if the guy had kept his ear. The only time that I've been punched in the face, I went down like a sack of spuds and stayed down. But by hanging on to stereotypes that the media used, I could be classed as a hooligan. Even with the internet, we don't have a great deal of choice when it comes to information and reliable information at that. There are a raft of distributors of news, but many of them use the same sources, and on top of that, it's often difficult to gauge the reliability of a source, or whether there's an agenda being followed. The internet as a font is similar to listening to your granny or the Daily Mail. Lots of rumours, sweeping generalisations, but very few reliable facts. Unfortunately for us, most people don't have either the will or the time to investigate everything they read. So take at face value what the newspaper says. This promulgates the myth of the football fan as being a slavering savage, a line that the media and politicians seem happy to perpetuate. Now, I'll look at three particular cases, the first one being called Death of a Policeman. The previous chapter opened with the Gentleman Ultra's evocative description of events in Catania on February 2nd, 2007. To recap, the Sicilian derby between Catania and Palermo had taken place for the first time in years, and supporters were ready to back their teams in their most important match of the season, while a minority were ready to settle old scores and generally get in a bit of bother. The match finished 2-1 for Palermo, but like the replayed matches after Heysel and Hillsborough, the result paled into insignificance after what happened off the pitch. That's where the similarities end though. At 10pm February the 2nd 2007, Italian football reached an unwanted first, the first police officer killed while on duty at a football match. What will follow is a brief sketch of what happened, followed by another two cases that may help readers understand why there is a mistrust of the police. This is not a justification for what happened in Catania. It is not to defend those who attack the police. I hope it may, however, shed some light on why there is a lack of faith in the police forces in Italy, and among football supporters in particular. Two of the three cases are related to football, while the third happened during G8 demonstrations in Genoa in 2001. Although that final example didn't happen anywhere near a stadium, its protagonists can, and have been lumped, into the same camp as ultras before by the media, therefore making it, at least in my opinion, relevant. But first, back to Catania. Let's look at what we know. And by know, I mean what has been ratified and decided by courts. On February the 2nd, 2007, Filippo Raciti, a police officer with 21 years of experience, was killed while on duty at the Catania-Palermo derby. The game was played on a Friday evening, and the Palermo supporters arrived at the Stadio Massimino late, having missed the first half. There was a welcoming committee of Catania fans waiting for them and the police strove to keep them away from each other. Just after 7pm, Officer Rachiti suffered the blow to his liver that would later cause a heart attack and his death. He was taken to hospital around one hour later, and dead by the 10 o'clock news. By the end of the night, there had been nine arrests, and a further 90 people injured. Four days later, Antonino Speziale, a 17-year-old from Catania, was arrested on a charge of... Resistenza aggravata a pubblico ufficiale, assault of a public official. He was later charged with manslaughter and accused of having thrown a sink from the stadium's toilets that hit Ricci, causing fatal trauma to his liver. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison for manslaughter, a tariff that would be reduced to eight years by the Corte di Cassazione, the court of appeal, while his co-accused Daniele Natale Michale, was sentenced to a total of 12 years. And that's the official story. Rachiti had a wife and two children, and what happened was terrible. No one should die for a football match, particularly when they're just doing their job and trying to keep the peace. When I went down to Catania, quite a few people brought the subject up, and were united in telling me that the official story was not the whole story. They also added that Speziale was not an angel by any means, but that equally he wasn't a killer. That's all gossip and hearsay and, as previously noted, the courts have spoken and found him guilty. Looking at the various statements taken afterwards, however, there are a couple of contradictions that Simone Anastasi examines in his book Il Caso Speciale. The most glaring would be a change in statement by Officer Lazzaro, one of Raciti's colleagues, who was there on the night in question. According to his first written statement, He, Rachiti and two other officers were in their Land Rover Discovery squad car when a flare was thrown at them. It went under them and Rachiti and the other two officers got out as his vehicle filled with smoke. Lazzaro put the car into reverse to move away from the smoke and as he did so he heard a bang on the car and saw Balsamo, one of the other officers, with Rachiti to my left and Rachiti moving his hands to his head. When questioned about this by the defence lawyer in court, Lazzaro's accounts of events had changed. The bang, Italian word botta, had become a boom, Italian word boato. And Raccitti wasn't on his left moving his hands to his head anymore, but was instead more than 10 metres behind the car, staggering near barriers. There were further discrepancies in his testimony regarding the action of other people on the scene. Images caught on the stadium's CCTV showed Spizziale holding a sink from the stadium's toilet, but no images of the sink hitting the Forensic evidence turned up flecks of paint on Inspector Ricchiti's jacket that couldn't be linked to the sink, but were roughly consistent with the Land Rover's paint colour. The inspector's autopsy showed that he had died from a heart attack following a liver haemorrhage and broken ribs, but another medical examination suggested that his death was instead caused by a blow to his chest. Although the CCTV evidence of Spitziale with sink in hand is pretty compelling, if there weren't any images or witness statements that saw him throwing it and then it hitting Rachiti, it doesn't seem the safest conviction. I am, of course, not a lawyer, but the change in statement from Rachiti's colleague Lazzaro and what he said in his first statement could lead us to think that the blow that would go on to kill Rachiti came from the reversing Land Rover Discovery and not the sink. Lazzaro's first statement was made at two fifty-five a.m. of February the third, so it could equally be the case that tiredness or stress caused him to misremember. Moreover, if Spitziali was not responsible for the officer's death, it's not clear why they would pursue a manslaughter charge against him. I don't intend to fight for Spitziali's innocence, as his case was brought in front of multiple courts before arriving at the final ruling of his guilt. However, given the apparent uncertainties in Spitziali's conviction... As an example of the doubt and mistrust that surrounds the reliability of the police forces in the judicial system, the Caso Speziale is one of the most notorious examples yet in a catalogue of suspicions. Death of a fan From a police officer dying to a fan being killed later in the year, 2007 was truly an annus horribilis for Italian football. On the 11th of November, a police officer shot and killed a Lazio fan, Gabriele Sandri. He and a group of friends had been travelling from the capital to Milan to watch Lazio play Inter. Just after nine in the morning, they stopped at a service station near Arezzo where they bumped into a group of Juventus supporters on their way to a different match. The scene descended into violence and hearing some commotion, a nearby police officer, Luigi Spacarotella, went to investigate. He saw the Juventus fans' car speed off, followed by the Renault Scenic that Sandri was a passenger in. In an attempt to stop the Lazio fan's car, the officer fired one shot from his revolver into the air, and then, pointing his gun at the car and gesturing it for it to stop, he heard the gun, his gun, fire again. This second shot hit the car. Sandri died from the subsequent gunshot wound to the neck. In comparison to the death of Rachiti, this case was more open and shut. The Department of Public Security, a branch of the Italian Interior Ministry, didn't believe Officer Spacorotella's version of events, i.e. that he didn't mean to pull the trigger the second time and that it had all been a terrible accident. He was found guilty of manslaughter and given nine years and four months in prison. Much like Speziale, Sandri was most likely not a saint. Shots being fired, however, were a measure that the situation probably didn't warrant. The officer wasn't in any clear danger as the fans had been fighting amongst themselves and he was a distance away when he pulled the trigger. According to his friends, Sandri had been sleeping in the back of the car while they had been fighting. The investigators cast doubt on this, suggesting that he had stones in his pockets and its friends weren't telling the whole story. Unlike the Rachiti case, the media's response was one of shock rather than anger. While newspaper reports in the days immediately afterwards carried some suggestions that the Laziali travelling with Sandri were armed for trouble, they generally avoided hyperbole. That was to come, though, as Sandri's death sparked violent protests against the police from Bergamo in the north all the way down to the capital. At last, we can call them terrorists, ran a headline two days later, reporting arrests, violence and vandalism caused by hooligans, ultras, vandals and terrorists the Ultra as a bogeyman had returned. As one journalist noted, to get revenge for Carlo Giuliani and Gabo, Sandri's nickname, killed at a service station by a police officer, but, above all, to destroy. It's a war brought by vengeful youth that don't have anything and don't relate to pacifism or sane supporters. Again, defending the people who attack police or set fire to police stations is not what I want to do. However, The rest of the article, while expressing fears about what might happen in the future – answer, nothing much happened – didn't try to get to the root of why this vengeful youth felt this way. It hinted darkly that the trouble was down to ultras and a political element from the far right, but didn't expand on this. Of course, in a newspaper, there isn't infinite space to explore the whys and wherefores in detail, and as we've already seen, the media's portrayal of supporters and ultras veered between smiling flag wavers and drooling knife wielders. But this simplification and criminalization of them as a whole does nothing to help. If anything, this kind of reporting glosses over the root problem, a disconnect between the police and those they should be protecting and serving, while further demonising an easy target and promulgating a sense of fear and threat. And finally, death of a protester. In writing about the repercussions of Sandri's death, the journalist drew on the name of Carlo Giuliani, whose own death is the third case we'll look at here. It is completely unconnected to football, but there are parallels that can be drawn from it without any great effort or leaps of faith. In July 2001, the G8 summit came to Genoa amid a huge police presence and were met by an estimated 200,000 protesters. Among this number were the dreaded Black Bloc, a loosely organised anarchist movement who had passed form for riots and protests at previous G8 and World Trade Organisation summits. On the 20th of July, during a confrontation near the city centre, Carlo Giuliani was shot and killed by a police officer, Mario Placanica. Video shows Giuliani throwing a fire extinguisher at a Carabinieri Land Rover with Placanica inside. Giuliani was shot in the head at close range by the officer, and then the vehicle ran him over twice. Unsurprisingly, the 23-year-old died at the scene. The first media reports on the day suggested that a Spanish man had been killed by a rock thrown by protesters. This information spread quickly, and it wasn't until later in the evening that the truth started to emerge. Placanica was cleared of any wrongdoing, as judges decided that one of the two shots he had fired into the air while he was inside the car to ward off his young aggressor had hit a thrown stone which was also flying through the air, the bullet then deflecting into and killing Giuliani. Needless to say, this remarkable version of events was difficult to believe, let alone swallow for many Genoese. At the next Genoa home match, the Carabinieri were greeted with a sustained chorus of assassini, 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 which is murderers, 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 from all corners of the stadium. The controversy over the police's behaviour that day didn't end there. They abused detainees at a local prison and conducted nighttime raids on centres hosting protesters and journalists, most notably in two schools. In the 2003 investigation into events, the city's deputy police chief, admitted to being involved in planting Molotov cocktails so as to justify the school raids, and also faking the stabbing of an officer to frame activists. Rory Carroll, the British journalist who was in Genoa reporting for The Guardian, wrote four days after Giuliani's death that the consequent raids had, according to an Interior Ministry source, turned into a revenge attack by police, venting their frustration after two days of failing to control looting and thuggery. The national consensus on events in the days immediately afterwards was pro-police. An opinion poll showed that a majority of Italians felt that the police had been too lenient. But where would this idea come from? Perhaps the media feeding people inaccurate reports and half-truths? That's not to say that the media were necessarily the driving force behind this misinformation, as their sources had to come from somewhere. But, as has already been argued, violence and fear sells, and so are at least complicit in the dissemination of inaccuracy. If we give the media the benefit of the doubt regarding the events in Genoa, which, for the duration of the summit, had eventually become a militarised zone, then we need to consider who was giving them information, and to what end. Again, following this line of thought, we arrive at the forces of order, the police and the state. It would be easy to slip into a state of paranoia if we believed that the institutions that should be protecting us were actually misleading us, and undoubtedly there were riots and street battles in Catania. There was a fight in a service station in Arezzo. There were violent protests in Genoa. But, as long as the police are seen, or even imagined, to use unnecessary force or to be involved in cover-ups, then there will always be a part of society that kicks back. Once again, I'm not saying that these parts of society are right to do so or that Spizziale, Sandri or Giuliani were innocent paragons of virtue. Nor would I like to belittle the loss that Ricchiti's widow and two children felt and continue to feel either. A fair bit of gossip has been written about her, a lot of it mean-spirited. But no matter how happy the family were or weren't, those two kids don't have their dad anymore. And if Spizziale is innocent... His parents have lost him for the duration of his jail sentence too. Sandri and Giuliani's loved ones lost their son, brother, nephew before they'd had time to find their way in life. Sadly, all of these cases resulted in loss and heartbreak and no matter what was reported, who was convicted or what subsequent measures were taken they were all tragic incidences of unnecessary and premature deaths. As far as I'm concerned, we need to ask ourselves What are we doing to engage those predominantly young male football fans who feel so disconnected from society and look for their kicks, in a literal sense, around football stadia? And how can we divert people from the path of violence before they go too far down it? Finally, is the idea that football fans being dangerous criminals more or less believable or palatable than the idea that a bullet could be deflected off a flying stone and hit someone in the head?